Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. Our guest this week is Michael Judd, and our topic is permaculture, edible landscaping, straw bale building, mushrooms, and even a permacultural approach to death. From his bio, Michael Judd is the founder of Ecologia, Edible and Ecological Landscape Design, and Project Bonafide, an international nonprofit supporting agroecological research. He's also the author of a new book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Before we get to our interview, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., and supporter Michael W. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. And now, our conversation with Michael Judd. Well, um, Michael, why don't you why don't we begin? Actually, where are you? Where are we speaking to you right now? And tell, tell us a little bit about the, the place that you live in and what it looks like. We're in the foothills of Appalachia in somewhat western Maryland. And what used to be uh, woodland and farmland is rapidly becoming uh, suburbia, uh, sort of corridor between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. So it's kind of this interesting hybrid uh, of having some of that old Appalachian culture, uh, still having some beautiful farmland and culture that works it, and then, you know, the uh, <laughs> all that goes along with suburbia and mass development without much consideration um, for the land or the watershed. We're in the Chesapeake uh, Bay watershed here as well. Did you grow up there? I did. I, uh, I was born here. Uh, I had a stint living in northern England in the late 70s, early 80s. Family moved there, which was a, a great experience. A very rural uh, little hamlet up there. Um, yep, came back here in high school, and then um, at the age of twenty, moved to Latin America. Uh, and I've spent better part of twenty years uh, living throughout Latin America, living um, some very far out places. Literally, uh, some of the last of the Mayans and the Lacandon jungle down in southern Mexico, Guatemala. Spent good part of 10, 12 years in Nicaragua, um, starting up a uh, grassroots uh, permaculture nonprofit called Project Bonafide, and moved back to this region about five years ago, and have rooted myself in, just finished building a circular straw bale home. Uh, took me five years. <laughs> wow. glad, glad that is complete. Uh, yep, and, and, and so I've been translating a lot of what I've been learning along my travels, uh, especially in Latin America and working with um, perennial food systems and experimenting and in, in adapting design to uh, suburban culture. Did you get interested in permaculture when you were in Latin America? You know, I did not know what permaculture was um, until I came back from living with the Lacandon Mayans uh, in southern Mexico. I came back because I got very, very sick living in the jungle. You know, I guess my body didn't belong there. And when I came back to the States during my time of, of healing, I was I heard about a, a natural building project down at a place called Earth Haven in North Carolina and the Appalachians down there near Asheville. So I, I sort of directed myself toward that, wanting to learn more about natural building and found myself right in the middle of a developing permaculture community. And began to see the the translations of what I'd been learning living with the indigenous people to sort of our modern culture. You know, permaculture was taking a lot of what I'd been learning from the indigenous folks and applying it to sort of the modern realities. So I was it was a natural graft for me to move right into and so that's that's how I became permaculture and then I spent many years just bouncing back and forth between the US, Europe and Latin America mixing permaculture and just indigenous knowledge. 
What do you think that indigenous knowledge that you learned in Latin America has to teach us about life in suburbia? I think of them as two distinct things, but are there things that you learned there that you've later applied to life in this crazy, you know, Costco world that we live in here in America? <laughs> Absolutely. It, it, living in, in the rainforest and the jungle, you quickly realize how fast things cycle. Uh, you know, once something is introduced into the environment, it comes back to you very quickly there. So it's kind of a sped up understanding of how uh, natural ecosystems work. So coming back to suburbia, I'm able to take that understanding of how fast things cycle through and sort of overlap it onto suburbia, you know, onto all of the runoff, all the concrete, all the lawns, and see sort of, you know, where that system is going and how it's dysfunctioning and how it's polluting, uh, and then be able to sort of use that same understanding of how natural ecosystems work to begin cycling it back into the sites, you know, begin to filter and cleanse and use it. Um, So, yeah, sort of taking sort of that macro understanding of ecology and, you know, designing and applying it to a suburban lot uh, has been very helpful to me. Now, of course, you've written a book, uh, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, and it seems like one of the kind of central parts of that book is that, that what you kind of alluded to, which is how, how to handle water. Uh, you want to say something about um, how you've done it on your own side and some of the kind of general principles one might use in, in dealing with water and where it goes and runoff and that kind of thing? Yes, I, I find it helpful when you're looking at your site to kind of envision it as a little mini watershed and, and maybe the sites and the slopes around it coming into the site. And using that concept of where water's coming in from, where it's flowing from, and try and, you know, spread it, sink it, and save it on your landscape. Uh, whereas what we normally see is, is that runoff quickly sheeting off and running into the watershed and taking all the pollutants with it. So uh, permaculture has a, has a lot of tools uh, for working with water. Ones that are, are very familiar and that I use a lot in suburban design are swales. Uh, now, these are swales on contour. Most folks are in suburbia are, are familiar with the swale being sort of the ditch at the bottom of the yard right. uh, that carries water away quickly. Now, that's a, that is also called a swale, but it's, it's off contour, so it's purposely um, angled so that water shoots away. That kind of seems to be the theme with our, our modern design landscapes is, is move water away as fast as possible. Um, so taking that, that sort of that same concept of a swale, of a dugout basin, uh, in permaculture what we do is we, we take that and we put it on contour, which means we make it pretty much perfectly perpendicular to the slope. So as water falls into that dugout basin, it stops and it filters in, it sinks in. And that helps hydrate the water table, not just for the raised berm behind it, but for the entire yard and probably your neighbor's yard below it. And then it's also filtering any, any chemicals and, or bacterial runoff um, and, and sort of stewarding the watershed at the same time. So it's really stacking functions. It's really having multiple benefits. And it's really not complicated uh, to do. So I encourage people to think and start small. Um, for example, if you're, you're down, most people have a downspout from their roof uh, that just kind of, you know, ends right there at the base of their foundation. I'm always surprised, uh, pretty much flooding right around their foundation. Right. Uh, or maybe they'll put attachment to it and they'll carry it out 10 or 15 feet and then just let it run there. Um, so what I like to start folks off on is the idea of a, mil- a little mini swale. Uh, you want to come 10, 15 feet away from your foundation before you start harvesting water, ideally. And then imagine, you know, a swale that's just uh, like your arms spread out wide and like you're catching that water that's coming out of that downspout. Go ahead and dig a, dig a basin. And when you're digging that basin, and, and you know, for a small, a small scale swale that might be 8 or 10 inches deep by, you know, maybe 20 inches wide, you take that soil and you put it on the downhill side, and that creates a raised bed, a berm. Then what I'd usually do is I'll fill that recently excavated basin with wood chips. And when the water comes off that downspout, now it falls into that little basin and stops and sinks in. So you're harvesting the runoff from your roof. You're stewarding it. And the chemicals that get picked up off the roof fall into the wood chips and get digested by the fungi and the bacteria there. 
Um, so again, it's it's a very simple but very powerful way uh, to begin harvesting and cleansing, you know, water from our sites. Uh, it's a variation of a rain garden. Uh, rain gardens uh, generally are, are just depressions in the earth with a very fast-draining soil in them, usually about 70% sand, um, you know, 30% topsoil compost mix. And the same concept, you're just letting that water stop and sink into the groundwater. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun you can have and a lot of style uh, that can be had also in designing these. And that's kind of where I've put focus, uh, being in suburbia, wanting this to be of interest, is, you know, how do you make it look good? You know, how do homeowners associations accept it? You know, how do businesses, you know, want it to, you know, be in their courtyards? Um, so I've sort of combined the aesthetic with function in edible landscape and permaculture design, and that's a lot of what my um, book uh, exemplifies. That was what I was going to ask you is about the um, the aesthetics and dealing with homeowners associations and community standards and that sort of stuff. Do you have any um, concrete examples from uh, your your students or clients um, of, of challenges that you've met, like maybe a particularly sticky homeowners association <laughs> or, or you know some some sort of challenge you've overcome through design, you know, or or changed hearts and minds, you know, to to get people to do this slightly different thing in their front yard. Yes, and I would say the most powerful thing that I've used um, is imagery, you know, of things that I've done or things, you know, that uh, that I'm looking to emulate uh, to show people. So, because you talk about a rain gardener, you know, a lot of a lot of homeowner associations or or you know suburban homeowners, you know, they're they're going to glaze over or they're going to have an idea of of something they see by the side of the highway. And so I think it's really about marketing it in a way and saying, hey, look, 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 look at these images. Look at this other one that, that, that I recently did. You know, look how beautiful it is. Look at all the stone-lined edge to it. Um, you know, look at the landscaping around it. You know, look at this colorful display of plants that are in it now. Um, so, I mean, I generally... I generally sell the the ideas and the by using imagery and by talking it up, uh, not so much by drawings. I know a lot of permaculturists really rely heavily on drawings, uh, and I, I rely more on my my sort of Appalachian storytelling uh, roots and and getting people excited, and then using imagery to show them you know what it looks like. And and I've been fortunate that I've done some very uh, high end. Um, jobs um, for restaurants and famous chefs and people that they recognize. So that helps me too. Uh, but what I'll do to other, you know, startup landscapers is I encourage them to take my book and show images of what they're talking about to potential clients and get them excited and interested in seeing the potential of how beautiful it is as well as functional. So I haven't really had any um, rejections um, from any of the homeowner associations um, once I've, I've, you know, given a clear picture of what we're doing. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, the way that um, you're talking about space, because I think of the first generation of permaculture, Mollison and Holmgren being these kind of their examples being these large-scale Australian ranches or something, but uh, it, it sounds like you're you're developing a vocabulary that's more, you know, you said suburban, but also it seems like commercial and residential uh, what do you think are some of the, I guess, maybe culturally adaptive, as you mentioned before we began rolling that phrase, what are the, some of the culturally adaptive techniques that, that you're interested in in permaculture and applying it to our life in North America here? In observing, you know, where the energy is around me here in this heavily populated area of the Mid-Atlantic, uh, where the majority of people are interacting, you you notice that it's definitely suburban. I mean, the majority of people, and I think that's becoming a trend across the country, is that urban and suburban environments are, are becoming, you know, the most highly populated areas. And if we want to affect change, you know, through this energy and multitude of people, uh, we need to sort of culturally make it of interest. And whereas I think, you know, Holgram and and Mollison uh, were, you know, really sort of working with the environments around them. They were working with the large-scale farmers there in Australia and naturally adapting it to that. And I think we need to take that understanding as designers and, you know, really observe uh, the culture around us and begin designing through that rather than jumping ahead uh, with a larger design or with a lot of jargon or a lot of in- intricate maps that really might glaze a lot of homeowners over. Uh, 
Uh, so I purposely don't, you know, you know, come in, you know, flying a, a permaculture banner uh, and will only sort of work in the terms or, you know, even the mentioning permaculture, uh, you know, after a concept has kind of been explained simply. So I, you know, I look at making things look good, making them look sexy uh, for people that that's very important for. And I like it too, you know, I, I, I have an artistic eye for doing things. So I add that to my designs. Um, so culturally, I'm, I'm noticing where people's interests are. And a lot of times that's the foodie crowd. So like, you know, if you go on Instagram or Facebook and you look at the popularity of different subjects, uh, you know, there'll be permaculture, you know, pretty far down there. And then it'll be, there'll be, there'll be gardening, it'll be organic gardening, then there'll be gardening, uh, you know, and those are all, you know, if you're looking at, you know, Instagram, you know, they might have, you know, 10,000 sort of posts. And then you go to food or foodies and all of a sudden you're up to 100 plus thousand. So, so just observing where people's interests are and food, you know, whether that's going to the restaurant, making your own food, you know, watching the food channel. Our culture is, is tuning in and very interested in, you know, good food. So how to work through that and getting them to begin interacting and growing their own food and working with their own landscapes, you know, how do you take it one step further uh, is a good observation that I've been using and started working with chefs to design their landscapes to be something they can pick from that are edible yet also functional. You know, there's a lot of awareness where we are for the Chesapeake Bay and its hopeful revival. Um, So really kind of leaning on that as well, saying, look, here we are getting, you know, fresh, tasty food, and we're stewarding the place where we live or where our business is. Um, These are things that they love to talk about, to share. You know, it also boosts their popularity. So it's kind of like just maneuvering through Uh, these cultural interests while still creating good functional design, Uh, whereas doing the reverse is saying, hey, I've got good functional design, you know, this is going to be great, we should do this. Uh, And, you know, I think you're going to get a lot of rejection from the mainstream, which has the most potential for creating change. So I'm weaving through that, even though on my own homestead, you know, we have about 25 acres of, of mostly woodland lawn up here. You know, my style of permaculture with my food forts and my gardens is, is more homestead rustic. <laughs> and that's, and that's, you know, that's what I like. Um, but, you know, I, so it's not, this isn't necessarily, you know, my whole game. It's not like this is what I would do if, you know, on my own, but I'm reading the culture and I'm sort of adapting to it. Now, speaking of food, uh, we, we, all three of us, or maybe, the, maybe you and I, I don't know if Kelly's in on this one, have an obsession with uh, strange fruits. Is that, Kelly, are you on yeah. that one? Or? I, I like to be the beneficiary of strange fruits, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but Eric is the one who will go to the California Rare Fruit Growers mm. Conference, you know, to Lucky. spend a whole day geeking out about fruit. It's a rabbit Lucky. hole. <laughs> but what, what, are your, what are the fruits that you're interested in where you live? I there? am a big Paul Paul mm. aficionado slash fanatic. Um, again, it's kind of an observation of where I am. Uh, pawpaws are just naturally abundant here. I mean, they're growing wild in the understory of the woods. Uh, they grow with very little or no care, no input. Uh, it's just it's just one of these sort of naturally, you know, strong species in our environment. So I'm like, wow, I definitely want to work with this. And then it just, to boot, is this beautiful tree. It's a fascinating tree in that it's a, a relative of the custard apple. So it it started, you know. Wait a second, out. the custard apple at the medlar? No, oh. no, the custard apple is in the cherimoya, the, oh, okay. uh, the, the oh, Anona the family. Ch- yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So the the cherimoya is more of the subtropical species. Mm-hmm. So so during you know the the retreat of the um, the glaciers, this pawpaw came from down south, you know, down southern Florida and along the Mexico border. It came creeping all the way back up here into southern Pennsylvania. Uh, over the you know over the millennia, and so now we actually have a tropical fruit growing here, and it has this beautiful large lobed leaves. You know the tree is pyramid shaped; it looks like it belongs in the tropics, and then it puts out this gorgeous fruit. You know if it's grown in full sun and it's a select variety, the size of a large mango, and inside it has this custard consistency fruit that has. Uh, hints of flavors of mango and banana and pineapple and melon. And it's just this exquisite, very rich treat uh, that that stands out uh, in our landscape. And you would think this is an exotic. 
uh, and yet it is something that's just naturally growing here. So I'm a big Paul Paul fan, and uh, we're actually going to have our first Paul Paul Fest here <laughs> wow. at our homestead. Yeah, coming up on uh, September 17th. So just celebrating, and and again looking where culture and ecology can sort of uh, intersect. And, and celebrate that. What's so, happening at the Papa Fest? <laughs> oh, we're, we're going we're, we're to come up with all kinds of stuff. Um, it, it, it's it's Papa Fest. You know, it's also in the fall, so it's it's going to have a little bit of that Appalachian Fall Fest as well. Um, we're definitely going to be making ice cream because uh, Papa makes wonderful ice cream, delicious ice cream. And, and you know, Papas don't have a shelf life, so you either eat them fresh. Uh, or you freeze the pulp or make ice cream with it. So, you know, a lot of the reason for the fest, and I think a big highlight, will just be people getting to experience for the first time trying, you know, a select grafted variety pawpaw, uh, learning about the tree and seeing how easy it grows, and hopefully, you know, getting them excited and planting them. Um, and ice cream, of course, won't hurt. Uh, we have this really cool 55-gallon barrel um, rocket stove that's made by InStove, which makes them for countries around the world as sort of these fuel efficient. Anyway, we got this gorgeous new 55 gallon barrel rocket stove and we're gonna make jam. So we're gonna make pawpaw and we have spice bush right now going crazy in our understory of our woods too. So we're gonna make a we're gonna make pawpaw spice bush jam. Uh, I'm sure we'll make some pawpaw cocktails. I, I know that's gonna have to happen somewhere. <laughs> I mean you know, it's almost inevitable around here. Well, that's, that's a um, big part of your book is cocktails. I would probably talk about that. Too, <laughs> well, it's the surprising addition to yeah, a book on permacultural yeah. landscape is that it's peppered with with cocktail Welcome recipes. Welcome. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's you see, that's the beauty of uh, you know sort of self designing and publishing your own book um, is, is you can do what you want. Um, it, yeah, but you know, fortunately, it, it is uh, distributed by Chelsea Green and, and it's out there on the whole scale. But I, you know, I got to do what I wanted and and. And, you know, you know, part of my reason for adding in, you know, interesting cocktail recipes into each chapter uh, is that, you know, people get excited in the spring about planting their gardens, planting fruit trees. And then, you know, come midsummer and it's hot, you know, and they want to go to the beach or swing in the hammock. The fruit, unfortunately, uh, goes to waste. And so I'm like, well, what's going to get somebody out there, you know, on a warm evening to pick some fruit? Uh, making a cocktail, so you know it's it's <laughs> all right. part of the design too. Yeah. It's 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 not just for debauchery. There are there any other fruits that we should know about? <laughs> well, in our neck of the woods, persimmons are you know the American persimmon. Uh, we're a little bit cool for the Asian persimmon. We're around the cusp here, but the American persimmon is another sort of uh, wild growing fruit here that that I think has a lot of potential, being very carefree. I mean, it can take complete abuse and neglect and still be very productive. Uh, unfortunately, there's not been a, you know, compared to the Asian persimmon, there's not been a huge um, sort of selection for, you know, for improved varieties. But there are some really good um, persimmon varieties out there. And I think the persimmon, the American persimmon, needs a little more um, celebration and education as well. A lot of folks who try American persimmon too early, <laughs> uh, it, it puckers you up. Right, right. And I think that's kind of the the pervading thought about the persimmon. And, you know, I think we need to really, you know, show and share the persimmon at its perfect ripeness and, you know, make things from it uh, so that people will say, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have a persimmon fest down the road, too. We'll, we'll see what happens there. Does the American um, persimmon taste like the Asian one and look like it? Uh, it's smaller. Um, I would say the largest, the large, the larger size of uh, of the American are more kind of like an egg, a large egg, uh, maybe a goose egg might be your largest size for a American persimmon, and uh, you definitely want to wait until they're mushy. Whereas some Asian varieties you can eat while they're firm. Yeah. The Americans you want to wait until they look like they're ready for the compost pile. You know, when you think, oh, that's too far gone, that's when it's perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think it's much richer. I think it has a much richer, deep flavor. It's almost like this, um, like apricot and honey and spices and mixed up. And it's this very rich, sweet flavor when it's perfectly ripe. And, and I rarely find that in an Asian uh, persimmon. So, again, you know, it's one of these things that doesn't doesn't find its way to the shelf because of the way it looks, mm-hmm. um, but which is a wonderful, easy grower, very nutritious and very abundant. I mean, the trees glut. I mean, they glut fruit. Pawpaws, mm-hmm. too. I mean, you mm-hmm. get 50 pounds of uh, 
pawpaw fruit off of, you know, one tree grown in the full sun. So these are easy, yeah, easy to grow and heavy bearing fruits. Uh, definitely, you know, make them popular for me. You mentioned one of my favorites, too, which is the mulberry. Uh, and yeah. I, I had a Pakistan mulberry here because a friend has that tree. I almost fainted. It was so good. I mean, it was just <laughs> crazy. But can, can, you can grow those where you are, right? Oh, yeah. They grow they grow wild here. And, and again, that's what most people associate uh, when, when you mention a mulberry. They think of a, a wild seeded bird one. And sometimes they're good. A lot of times they're just kind of insipid and sweet. Uh, still make great pie. Uh, but uh, Pakistan mulberry and Illinois ever-bearing mulberries, some of the select varieties that are grafted uh, are delicious. I mean, the berries, you know, they're two, three inches long. And, and they're sweet and complex in flavor. It's literally one of the best berries I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I think it's just this sort of the celebration and education that needs to happen around um, you know these, you know the select varieties of them because they grow like weeds. Yeah, they grow fast. Uh, if you want a tree fast, right. you plant a mulberry. Yeah. Yeah, I've been sort of gorilla grafting uh, all of the wild seeded bird ones around here. So I'll take I'll take a cutting, a cyan cutting off of uh, sort of an Illinois Everbearing in the late winter, and I'll go along the fence line and I'll find a you know a two three foot tall you know, bird-seeded mulberry, and I'll graft onto it, and I'll get 10 foot of growth out of that scion. Yeah. Mm. I will get 10 foot of Illinois Everbearing out of that in one season. <laughs> uh, it's it's a perfect combination because it's been seeded, which means it's never been disturbed, so that's ideal. Uh, you know, transplanting trees always weakens them somewhat. If you can direct seed something and never move it, it's always just about always going to be much stronger. So when you find that wild rootstock and you can graft in place, you're going to get a very robust and strong tree. Mm, that's a good idea. Now, uh, this is a, a bit of a marital spat around here. Oh, no. But, uh, Are you going to air our dirty yeah. laundry? What? I'm going to put you right in the middle of it, Michael, <laughs> oh. which is uh, <laughs> Michael. jujubes. Good, oh, good, good yeah. or bad? Oh, the jujubes. Love them. Love jujubes. <laughs> I don't know whose side I'm well, on. Well, you both can go to the doghouse. <laughs> uh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm, I'm a big jujube fan. Uh, very carefree tree. Uh, I think gorgeous. I mean, we in the Mid-Atlantic, we're very humid, um, which allows things to grow very strongly, but it also invites a lot of funky uh, fungus and, and bacterias. And so a lot of trees, you know, the apples, the pears, the peaches, the cherries, they get hammered here. Um, whereas my jujube trees have these perfectly shiny green leaves on them, um, like right in the face of all the blight. And, and for that reason, you know, itself, I, I think they're very wonderful and, and they're tough. And obviously their fruit is, is amazing and is one of the main medicinals in Chinese medicine. There you go, Kelly. There you go. <laughs> now, I am I'm all for uh, carefree, strong trees, you know, and that's why we have our own our own palette of trees out here in the West where we, you know, we can't have pawpaws and I don't think the uh, American persimmon grows this far West, but we have, you know, we have prickly pear fruit. You know, unstoppable, mm. unkillable, <laughs> nothing bothers it. Delicious, you know. We love these things. Or, or figs are are, are weeds out here. Um, pomegranates, you know, pomegranates, yeah. unstoppable. Also, all these things that do not need care. Whereas, indeed, our our stone fruits and you know, apples are kind of sad here. It's just a little too hot for them, and the stone fruits are having a really hard time. But, you know, that's what I, I say to people: is why struggle with these varieties, which you can find actually fairly easily in the um, farmers market. Uh, and you know, grow grow these impossible to transport, delicious, rare things. Uh, you know that perhaps native to the region, and you know, and are unstoppable. I'll, I'll remain in. I mean, I do agree. You know, <laughs> jujube is a medicine, and I'll, I'll buy it as that. But to me, it's like those. Remember those orange circus peanuts. Uh, you know, it's like the fruit version of those orange circus peanuts. It's like sweet styrofoam is the way I think of it. And Eric thinks that's an incredible texture. But I'm like, no, we have very, very limited uh, real estate. We have a 12th of an acre. So we have to agree on the trees we plant. (laughs) Well, I wonder wonder if there's a big sort of consistency and flavor difference, you know, Mm. across the country here, because the ones we have are, you know, they range depending on the variety from being really crisp and juicy, like a really nice green apple, mm-hmm. uh, to leaving some varieties on the tree to begin to wrinkle and caramelize. 
and then they're you know very deep and very date-like in flavor. Hmm, so maybe, maybe, maybe trying a few other varieties uh, might might bring you around. Well, maybe so. Well, give it a try. <laughs> now you mentioned unwanted fungus in passing. What about uh, your oh the, big, the desirable uh, fungus? Yes, desirable fun- fungi. Uh, meaning your um, your work with the uh, with the uh, the mushroom logs and such. Yeah. Do you have a favorite yeah. technique and favorite uh, mushroom for maybe beginners and then? You know what? Yeah, yeah, yes. Fortunately, they're one and the same. Yeah, and, right. And, and and you know, sort of like the pawpaw, an observation of where we are in this this humid landscape is that mushrooms just grow crazy. I mean, they grow wild here. Uh, they're abundant. So taking that observation and being like, well, it's not going to take much work to, you know, grow these ourselves and have select varieties. And of course, we're very wooded here, so we have that big resource of wood to use and sort of putting it all together, growing oyster and shiitake mushrooms on logs is quite easy and very productive and very tasty. Um, so much more than, than what you could ever usually buy in the store. Uh, you know, mushrooms sold in the store are usually grown on sawdust blocks inside of warehouses uh, and, and tend to taste like it. Whereas if you're growing your own variety of shiitake or oyster, which has been selected over, you know, centuries uh, for being, you know, an excellent variety, and then you're growing them in the outdoor conditions on wood and natural elements, the flavors are just amazing. They're exquisite um, and, and really call for people to, you know, to take up trying growing mushrooms at home. Uh, it, it's quite it's quite straightforward. Uh, if you're going to grow on logs, you want to cut uh, logs, uh, dormant wood that's healthy. So you don't want to get an old piece of firewood that's been kicking around. It's probably already got, you know, ambient fungi in it. You want fresh, healthy wood. And that combines often with, you know, sustainable forestry and helping thin out our forests, which, you know, have been cut so many times they, they come back crowded. Uh, so going through and selectively thinning uh, gives you the wood. Uh, to then, you know, harvest healthy uh, at the end of winter. And then as, you know, as the day temps warm up into the 50s, probably not a problem for you all out there, <laughs> um, it, then then you go ahead and you drill your log and you get little plugs that have the mycelium on them. We call that spawn. And you tap them into the logs and you seal that with a little bit of wax and you put your log in an evenly moist spot and you be patient, wait about a year, and then they'll start fruiting, uh, often twice a year, depending on the strain uh, and the weather, you know, how, how warm and wet it is. And you get beautiful flushes off of a log. Um, you know, you, you can get upwards of, of a pound a year off a log, which is a lot. Because mushrooms, you know, they're not that heavy. A pound's like a big bag of mushrooms. And that's just one log. So you start getting a couple different logs. You start growing some oysters on some, some shiitakes on others. And before you know it, um, you've got a lot more friends. <laughs> and, and, then, and, and then also another very easy one to grow that doesn't need um, logs is the garden giant, also known as wine cap. Uh, the Latin for it is stropharia, which grows in organic matter, uh, wood chips. It grows very well in wood chips. So it grafts well into mulching our trees. It grows nicely under deciduous trees. Mm. So if it's under your jujube tree, for example, <laughs> um, you know, you are combining, you know, helping mulch the, that tree while at the same time getting another harvest from, you know, the wine caps that grow abundantly and very easily in those wood chips. And on, on top of all that, the mycelium, you know, reaches through the soil and begins, you know, swapping and, and giving more nutrient uh, to the trees. So their vigor increases, their resistance to disease increases. So you're stacking a lot of functions there uh, as well as your harvest. So I, the, it, once you start working with fungi, it is a, it's a love relationship <laughs> it, that flows. It's very easy and very rewarding. Do you have a favorite source for spawn? I do for where we are. Ideally, you 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 get spawn, um, you, you get the mycelium somewhere regional or somewhere with a similar climate pattern to yours. Um, for our area, uh, I like to use field and forest products. They are out in Wisconsin. Wonderful people, been doing this for twenty plus years. 
uh, I, I've successfully, you know, used their their um, spawn for four or five years now, maybe more. So I highly recommend them. Their website's very informative. Their catalog is very how-to as well. Uh, of course, there's the um, guru of all things fungi, Paul Stamets, and he's up in Washington State, I believe, mm-hmm. and his company and website is uh, Fungi Perfecti. And, uh, again, a wonderful resource for information about all the many uses of fungi, not just for, you know, eating it, but using it to help clean up toxins and environmental runoff, like I was talking about earlier with, um, you know, doing your swales and your wood chips. You can combine that specifically with strains to, you know, clean up even petrochemical runoff and oil spills. So another great informative site. And if people have time, 18 minutes of your life to watch Paul Stamets's TED talk on, um, you know, the wonders of fungi, it's amazing. It, it, it really opens uh, your eyes to the, to all the different relationships and realities that fungi play in our world and how we as a species, as humans, are intricately linked with fungi. And really, if we want to continue existing through this current extension, uh, ex- extinction period, uh, we need to really pair up with fungi. I touch on some of that in my book as well, even though it's, it's a how-to uh, chapter in my book on how to grow on logs and wood chips. Uh, you know, I throw in there how to use it to, you know, steward runoff and, and certainly um, how to, you know, check out Paul's work. One of the other things in the book is uh, earth building, and uh, I know you mentioned it when we began talking that you just finished a, a circular straw bale house. Is that right? You want to yes. say something about that? That's been an amazing adventure. Um, it's been five years in the works, and you know we we built it. We round wood timber framed it from the wood from our land, uh, which means that we didn't um, sort of square it off, which would have made it a lot easier. Um, <laughs> But the beauty and the art of doing round wood joinery and round wood joinery. So we have, you know, our house is circular and it's got round wood columns meeting round wood rafters. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the all of the wood in the house is from our land. Uh, we did a living roof. We did earthen floors, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. a bear of work, but but oh, beautiful. Yeah and nice to live on. Uh, so we did earthen floors in the whole house. Uh, we did earthen plasters on the inside, lime plasters on the outside. We did a rubble trench foundation, which means it's just packed gravel. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing in the ground to, to ever fail. You know, if you have concrete and rebar as mm-hmm. part of your foundation, it's going to fail at some point. As well, we know. Um, yeah, we know yeah. that. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, even the oldest buildings on the planet are, mm-hmm. you know, are stone, stone foundations. So, and ours is all coated. You know, we got it all permitted. And so, the, you know, basically just where the, the weight of our columns sat, we dug out trenches three foot by three feet and packed in gravel and then built up from that, um, which also acts as like a drainage. So any water coming in to, in and around our house naturally falls into that, and it's all you know graded out to the front where I'm eventually going to build a pond, but it acts like a big French drain. So mm-hmm. it's, it's this wonderful, easy, ancient design. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to do, uh, you know, code-wise. And then we have gray water, very simple, gravity-fed gray water system, uh, you know, a small compost toilet. And it's just, it's super groovy. Uh, it, you know, building in the round is is not something I would necessarily recommend uh, <laughs> because of the, the, just the time challenge, but to live in, it's beautiful. I mean, psychologically, to live... With with all these round structures and and just round curves, uh, it really allows the mind to to be at ease. So I think it'll be worth it in the long run. And all the, the natural surfaces as well. I imagine yeah, it must be very very uh, grounding to be in there. It is. It is. We've only we've only been in there two weeks now. Oh, so wow. it's, it's it, still fresh. Yes, yeah. it, it, it still seems surreal that I'm actually living in it, but um, it it is a joy. And uh, was the coding difficult? Was it? How was the conversation with uh, with the inspectors? Fortunately, I was not the first oh. to build a straw bale in my county, which made a big deal. Um, and then I worked with sort of a, a natural architect to detail things. I spent uh, okay. a lot of money on that. And then I found an engineer who would, you know, stamp off. And I think that's the key I've learned um, when it comes to coding in general. 
if if some engineer somebody will stamp on it stamp off so that they're saying it's okay, then I think, you know, the government, I mean, basically they don't want their neck on the line. And if somebody else's neck's on the line, then I think they're much more likely to say, fine, go for it. (laughs) So I think, you know, it's just finding someone to take the responsibility for, you know, your plans uh, is a big part of it because we've had load-bearing straw bale houses built in our county. Mm. I think one of the first houses ever, one of the first straw bales ever was a load-bearing and I'm sure the county was like, what are you talking about? And then they probably found an engineer to stamp it, and they said, fine. Now, did you do some of the work yourself, or did, <laughs> or did you did do all, all the work yourself? I did all the uh, – I mean, I, I definitely had a lot of, uh, you know, talented friends and help, especially with the round wood um, joinery. You know, that took a, a level of carpentry above my own. Um, but yeah, my, my wife, um, and now our, our baby boy has been throwing his, wow. <laughs> his weight into it. I don't know how, how much help that's been, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's been a very, it's been a wonderful building experience in the sense that, of having lots of hands on the house, having lots of people come volunteer help, um, friends who are craftsmen, um, you know, so it has a lot of different beautiful uh, artistic elements in it, you know, from the touches of different people. Uh, it's a real beauty. I, I, I have some pictures up. I just did a post on our on our, on our our website uh, that shows some of the imagery of it. And if I ever get to sit long enough, I'll, I'll, um, I'll write some articles and, and maybe, maybe a book in the future. I'm, I'm oh, not cool. eager to start that process again, though. <laughs> Before we forget, what's that website so people can take a look at that? Uh, it's Ecologia Design. Um, Ecologia is a Portuguese word for ecology, so it's ecologiadesign.com. And, and yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of how-to on my site as well. I put a lot of what's in my book on the site, but just having a look at the straw bale is, is pretty fun. And you'll see our Paw Paw Fest poster there. Oh, yeah. When, now, so when is Paw Paw Fest? And September 17th. Okay. Just, uh, there you go. Number of weeks away. Are you guys going to come? I wish we could. I wish we could. It sounds great. <laughs> yes. It's a lot of fun. Below our well, carbon it, it, budget. You know, <laughs> yeah, year, I but. hear you. I hear you. Well, if you're ever in this area, you know, please feel free to come by. Likewise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a daydream, but now the house is done, we might actually get out. How long did it more. take you to build the house? Oh, five years. Right? Oh, five years. Well, five, five years in the works. You know, the first year was, you know, we had Hurricane Sandy come through here about mm-hmm. five yeah. or six years ago, and, and I actually used most of the wood for the house from that storm. Oh, wow. Um, it was about the time I was getting to design and think about it. And actually, the house is, is, is based on that structure I went to work on at Earth Haven, you know, 20 years ago. Um, so it stuck with me. And, um, yeah, five years and then four years in the actual building, you know, like starting the foundation and going at it. And, I mean, I've still got plenty of things to iron out there, but, uh, you know, pretty much a solid, solid four to five years building. Anything? I, I'm, yeah. The, anything I'm that you would, other things in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. There of is course. Life, There's right. life. Life. Life, and life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. life was in there, too. Yeah. <laughs> anything that you would do differently looking back on the, those five years? Oh gosh, I I I think looking at my life overall, I wouldn't have chosen <laughs> the time of no. life to do that. No. You know, I I I I just gotten married. I just uh, we just yeah. had a baby boy. I couldn't foresee it, but my my father passed mm. in the last couple of years, and and you know, building a house like this uh, it took me away from being present for a lot of important events, and and so I you know, I, in hindsight, maybe that wasn't the best time to build it. Uh, now that said, I now get to live in it. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's done. Yeah, yeah. yes. It, it, you know, it's a thing of beauty. It's an, a piece of art. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, maybe I would have gone a little more functional with it um, to have saved time, sanity, and money. <laughs> um, but it is, it is what it is, and it's, it is, it is a beauty. Now, before we uh, started rolling tape here, uh, you mentioned you wanted to say something about our culture's relationship to to death. And given the passing of your father, I guess maybe this is on your mind, too. Um, And and I think certainly a a topic related to permaculture. Uh, Why why don't you say what you wanted to to say about, about that? Yeah, I, I've you know since my father's past, my father was a, was a remarkable um, a man, and you know in he he passed over the period of about eighteen months and really embraced dying and really glowed during that time frame, even even as his his body was deteriorating. 
Um, and he, surprisingly, he said it was, you know, one of the best years of his life. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and just taught us, taught us, everyone around him, a lot about, um, you know, what an amazing opportunity death can be. And um, during that time, the conversation came up for creating a sort of a home burial plot. And, you know, everyone in the family said, okay. And they kind of let me, you know, sort of lead that, and along with my dad's support. So interestingly enough, you know, my dad and I worked on the design and and creating an area on our land here uh, and, and sort of navigating and, and finding out what the regulations were or were not around, uh, you know, being able to have a, a, a you know, a home uh, funeral and burial. And I uh, was very pleased to find that there were no regulations against it in, in Maryland. And I think in most states there are not. So, uh, but when I started calling around, I called the health department, and they're like, "Oh, well, gosh, we don't know. Let me check." Uh, and they'd come back and say, "Oh, yeah, actually, you can." And, and almost everybody that I would interact with had the same response because it wasn't being done. Mm. You know, a uh, hundred years ago, or even less in our area, that was the norm out in the counties. You know, right. all the farms around here have their, you know, their burial plots. So, not very quick turnaround here, uh, you know, 60, 70 years, our traditions and culture of, of you know, of being with our, with our loved ones during their passing and then preparing them and then bearing them ourselves has really been lost uh, mm-hmm. and really handed over to the funeral industry, which, uh, mm-hmm. as you look into more and more, is, 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 is not very attractive. No, if yeah. you've ever dealt with them, you do not like them. Yeah, used car salesman. <laughs> the used car salesman yeah. of death, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and so going through the experience with my father, and, and it, was, it wasn't easy, but I wouldn't, do it, I wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, we were able to, he was able to die at home, and, and he never had to leave us, and we were able to, um, you know, wash him and sit with him and have a wake drink lots of whiskey, um, you know, just to hold presence, you know, for three days. Um, and, and I'd read and heard, you know, other cultures saying, you know, three days was a norm, that, you know, it took that much time for, you know, the essence of somebody to sort of pass on. And I was like, oh, well, maybe. But I actually got to experience that with my father. And um, I would not have been comfortable burying him until the third day. Hmm. Uh, you know, this, there, is, there are changes. Um, and, and I can't imagine. So if someone normally dies and people, I think, normally get nervous and they call right away and, and they're whisked away. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, that, that we need and deserve time for transition in a place of, of um, comfort uh, and with loved ones around us. You know, I don't think it's this immediate thing where it's like, whoop, dead and gone. Mm-hmm. I still think there's some transition happening. Uh, and I saw that with my father and then, you know, a couple of months later with my grandmother. Uh, his mother. So they, they passed within a couple of months mm-hmm. of each other, and, and we, we took care of them both and buried them both on our land. And, uh, and it was powerful, and it was beautiful, and it felt right. Um, so so I've, I'm becoming an advocate um, for, for, you know, home burial or even green burial. Uh, and green burial is growing in, in, in popularity, and that means that either it's a completely dedicated cemetery for green burial, or more often, uh, traditional, conventional, I should say, cemeteries are having areas uh, that you can do a green burial in, in, which means that you don't have to have, you know, a casket. You could be wrapped in a shroud. Mm. Um, you definitely don't have the concrete vault that goes over you, which is used to keep a grave from slumping, which allows them to mow more evenly. That's <laughs> the only reason. I've read an interesting statistic. Um, I think it was that each year in the States, so much concrete is used in vaults that you could make a highway from New York to Chicago. Oh, my God. And the amount of metal that's in the caskets in one year could build the Golden Gate Bridge. <sighs> so it's a, there's an enormous amount of resources going into um, you know, conventional funerals. And that seems a shame, you know, I mean, to, to, you know, sort of drag more resources with you as you go, mm-hmm. not to mention the embalming. And, and I think so a lot of people default to cremation, uh, and, but cremation has a huge footprint, too. Uh, now, uh, now, now, you don't always have options, and that's fair enough, and everyone has their own comfort for what they're willing to do. But, um, you know, I think being shrouded, you know, being put in a hand-dug grave, not only is it, you know, a lot more sort of ecological, 
but I think it offers a lot more ceremony and process, uh, which which I found was very much needed um, and, and grieving. And, and so I think it all goes together. And, and and I think we would be surprised if we looked around for the resources in our area to find out, you know, that there are a lot more than than thought of. And it takes planning. Uh, it's, since we're not really talking about death culturally, uh, people don't really plan. Uh, and what happens is, you know, someone dies and you, you don't even really know necessarily what their wishes are. So you call mm-hmm. the... Call the funeral home right away, and and then you know you're you're struggling to figure out what to do, and you don't know what they would have wanted, and it's just not the time to be making decisions. No, uh, and and that's why people hand it over. So, uh, you know, I'm just trying to encourage people just to have a conversation and plan, and let let the people around them know what they would like, even if it's something conventional, uh, just so it's it's just you know clearer and it's easier when the time comes. Is this something that you took on yourself, or did you have someone to help you with the process? I I did a lot of it on my own. I I did obviously I had you know support of my father, you know someone to do it, you know go through the process with, and my family was supportive. Um, but I, I do have a very close friend um, who is who's definitely sort of um, I don't know if I'd say you know sort of a spiritual leader, but she's a very very grounded, wise woman in our community, um, and she helped me. She helped us with um, you know his passing. So. You you know, after he passed, you know, she came and helped us and, you know, you know, helped us wash him and wrap him and prepare the space and, you know, those things which I had information on, but was very helpful to have someone guiding, you know, she was kind of, kind of like a, um, a, a death doula or mm-hmm. a sort of a midwife for death. These mm-hmm. are actual roles that are, that, uh, that, that people, you know, study for and practice and do just like a, a birthing doula and birthing midwife. There are midwives and doulas for, for dying, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's the right. other inevitability in life. Mm-hmm. We do right. all this planning for birth. I mean, how many times people mm-hmm. go to the doctors before a baby's born? <laughs> and yet we usually do no planning for dying, and it's just as inevitable. Well, Michael, I think we need to let you let you get on with your day, but I, I really want to thank you. Um, let's let's review your website and where people can can get a copy of your book. Yeah, great. Yeah, we we do have our book through our website. Um, of course, the ever present Amazon too, but uh, through our website, you know, certainly supports us more. Um, but it's a very how-to book. Uh, it, it really jumps right in. It's very short on the philosophy, and it's like, okay, how do you build an herb spiral? How do you do swales? How do you start a food forest very simply? Um, a lot of my uncommon favorite fruits in there. Uh, how do you build an earthen oven? Hugoculture beds. And it, it's I've written it, I think, in a fun, easy-to-follow way. So, uh, yeah, check it out on our website and, um, you know, put it to use. That was Michael Judd. You can find his website at ecologiadesign.com. And once again, his book is Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for supporting this podcast. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.